Hi, everybody. This is Tyler Buckingham, host of the Beach Shack podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And I am thrilled today to be doing the Thanksgiving Day special show for ASPN. And I have three awesome guests lined up today, all from the Valente family. Of course, our listeners are uh, well familiar with Jenna Valente, host of the Sea Change podcast on ASPN, uh, but they have not yet been introduced to Peter and Oren, uh, Jenna's father and grandfather. The three of you, I'd like to welcome you to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Well, uh, as, as our listeners know, this is a program where we study coastal property and ownership and profile some of the uh, ways that coastal living and coastal uh, properties can richly uh, uh, enhance our lives and and give us something especially uh, to be thankful for. And uh, today I want to profile a beach cottage up on the rocky shorelines of Maine uh, where Oren uh, has owned a place for, I understand, some time. Oren, give me a little history of your beach cottage. Well, uh, number one, we do not have much of a beach in our cottage. It's pretty rocky. But uh, anyway, I was born in 33, and the cottage or camp was uh, finished to live in uh, in 35. So uh, I was roughly two years old when we moved into it, but I uh, give you a little background on my father. He was immigrant from Italy. Oh, wow. And uh, he fought in the First World War, if I might, might bring that subject up. Absolutely. Uh, he was wounded in battle. Uh, he came to uh, Maine and uh, met our mother. They had seven children, and I'm number eight. Uh, counting my mother and father. I'm really number six child. Uh, so I'm limited on knowing anything from the start, but my sisters, the three oldest uh, siblings, uh, told me a lot about this place. But uh, my father uh, had a truck and he hired out with a contract to building Route 1 from Port Kent, Maine to Florida. Wow. And while he was building along the coast, down in Gouldsboro, uh, we call it downhill, I mean, uh, down east, but uh, uh, he encountered some uh, people, natives, uh, of the, the, the particular town, and uh, he started buying some property. And uh, $5 here, $5 there, and then kept enlarging it. But he also had a trucking business that he delivered freight to Atlantic Pacific Tea Company uh, supermarkets in those days. Uh -huh. So he'd have a lot of damaged goods that he would sell to the, to the neighbors. And it, it's actually pretty fascinating because we still have um, the receipt of sale from the property and you can see, you know, a few eggs here, some flour there, some hard labor here. Um, so this was definitely a piecemeal deal. Wow. <laughs> so so was, was he acquiring the property in like a barter type of scenario? Yes. Yes. And, uh, Eventually, 
uh, a friend of his and, and uh, this friend's wife, uh, they became very good friends. I think they met uh, working on the B&E Railroad oh, wow. uh, be before this uh, started to happen, and they decided to, to build a camp together. Wow. And, and uh, when I came along, number six child, uh, they decided that there was not going to be any room for the other the other two. <laughs> yeah, right. So they split off a little bit of the property and gave it, deeded it over to them and built a place for him at the same time. That's and I said earlier, in 1935, uh, is when we could move into that, that camp uh, and we've been there ever since. That's very interesting, Oren. So uh, it sounds to me like the distinction between the camp and the cottage up in New England and on, in Maine is that a camp is more primitive. It seems like it's it's more like you're camping. Maybe you have a, 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 a basic structure there, but maybe not the amenities of running water and things like that. Is that basically it? Yeah. That, that's correct. Uh, we they, they dug a well. Okay. Lined the well with rocks wow. when they built the, the well. And uh, there was no running water. You had to carry the water 100 yards or so. And then uh, you had to have wood to, to, to uh, keep warm and uh, in the fireplace or in a, in a cook stove. And so it was primitive. Uh, no lights, kerosene lamps. Wow. Candles. Yeah, and I I think that the the term camp when it comes to Maine, um, it, this is something that I have encountered numerous times throughout my life because I've moved a great deal, and this property is so central to my identity and who I am. So I talk about it all the time. I know that I've talked about it on my show. I spoke about it speak about it to you and Peter all the time. Um, not to be confused with Peter, my dad. Peter is the um, other, Tyler's other counterpart on a yeah. different podcast. Co-creator. But... He's he's the uh, the supervising editor. He he and I are are ASPN basically. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you know, I've in my encounters with other people where I've been talking about my camp. I think oftentimes they think that we own some sort of summer camp where you know kids can go and spend the summer. Um, but a lot of people in Maine, and I, I, I might even open this thought up to the rest of New England, um, this area is so beautiful that a lot of people own their own homes here, and then they choose to vacation in their own state. Um, yeah. So they will buy a second property and call it camp, where it might not be a swanky summer home, um, but it's... It's a place where you can go and take your vacations, maybe unplug a little bit. Some of them have running water, some of them don't, some have electricity, some don't. Um, and with our camp, it's been a development over time. Um, we do we have an outhouse, but we now also have a bathroom with running water. Yeah. Um, but when you have a lot of people there, as we'll get into, our family is very large and we run <laughs> off of the well water. Um, we try to save water as much as possible. So really when we're up at camp, um, it's all about managing expectations. You're probably not going to take a shower unless you, for some reason, get 
unbelievably dirty, but, um, you know, just be prepared to not really shower and uh, unplug from your cell phone and the internet and just enjoy the company that you're with in the place that you're at. Yeah, it sounds like a really great way to spend quality time with your family away from the hustle and bustle of, you know, modernity and, and society, which is, I think, uh, always restorative and just a healthy thing to do. Um, Peter, let me turn it to you and ask you uh, what to describe this place. So when I think of uh, the main shoreline, I, I do know that it's a it's mostly rocky. There's some sandy areas for sure, but rocky shoreline. But it's also a very, you know, we're talking about New England here. This is a seasonal place with four very distinct seasons. And um, so I imagine, I mean, I'm curious to know, do you guys go out there in the wintertime? Uh, do you spend any time out there in the fall? In the, Obviously, I imagine summer must be the, the prime time to spend time out there, given how uh, legendary Maine summers are and how wonderful the climate is. But Tell me a little bit. Describe. Let's describe the place a little bit. What are What are the trees like? What What's the shoreline like? Uh, and And what sort of activities uh, do you do there in the various seasons? Uh, well, I guess the best way to describe it is uh, is it's uh, amazing. Actually, is the word I would use. Uh, the camp or the cottage is is kind of rustic, but uh, adequate. Uh, we do have running water and flushes and all that stuff. But yeah, yeah the view I, it is so hard to describe. Uh, I think it's one of the finest in on the coast of Maine. You look from our property straight out to a set of islands called Sally Islands, which which we have named uh, nicknamed Five Mile Islands, nice. because it's miles from camp. You look out across this sandbar that runs to a point, and Sally Islands line up perfectly across the sandbar. And the sandbar is probably uh, I'm going to say a half a mile from camp. Uh, we've got Lobster Island, which is probably two or three hundred yards, maybe 400 yards from camp off to the left. Wow. Uh, we, in the summertime, uh, the bay is, is littered with uh, lobster buoys uh, from the local lobstermen fishing there. Uh, the currents are pretty, ex pretty ex extreme in our area. Uh, the tides do, we do have some pretty extreme tides and uh, we water flows out and then back in and uh, it's just uh, fabulous it's uh, anybody that's ever been there they always want to come back you know yeah. it's it's amazing uh, we have a barn that's pretty rustic uh, and one thing i wanted to mention was we've been creative as far as our water and uh, we have two 1,500-gallon cistern tanks that we collect off the barn and some of the other cottages to use for our flushes. And then if you do go down and do clamming or the, or the grandchildren or the children or the grown-ups decide to go down clamming or get muddy or go swimming or whatever, 
you you have that water available to you to rinse off and uh, uh, we also have a another smaller cottage guest cottage I guess you could call it that uh, uh, is available uh, when we do have larger crowds you have to understand that our family uh, just went over 200 uh, this past September that that includes 200 marriages, people. 200 people so uh, one thing about that is when you enter our family is you get a number <laughs> so my father is what what's your number eight Six. no no number eight my yeah. father's eight so my fa grandfather was one my grandmother was two and then down the line yeah so I'm I'm 32 so but we're now up to 200 you wow know, and wow if you do, I know I'm kind of going off. No, from what keep you going. Ask me, but uh, so that's that's kind of the uniqueness of of this little place we call the Seldom Inn. Actually, there's a name for the place called Seldom Inn. I don't know who came up with the name. I will tell you that Peter, it was our grandmother uh, on our mother's side that called it Seldom Inn. Seldom Inn. And yeah. she wrote a poem at that time uh, to reiterate the seals uh, swimming by, the gulls screaming. And uh, it actually might be uh, in one of the cookbooks. It is. In one so of the cookbooks. you guys continue the conversation, yeah. and I can go yeah, find so, it. So uh, it's, it's uh, a lot of a lot of point of having an anchor uh, with our grandmother. She would stay with us one week when school was out in the summer and my mother would go home and cook for my father and then vice versa every other week we'd have our grandmother or our mother and my father would would go back in the trucking business and and do all of that so that's that's how we grew up all huh. seven kids let me ask so, a question uh quickly i i want to learn more about your family's connection not just with maine but also with the sea because Oren, you worked uh, as a ship chandler, uh, among other things. And I know, Peter, you're a career Coast Guardsman. And uh, Jenna is now engaged in ocean advocacy and works there. And I'm curious to know two things. I know, um, uh, Oren, your father uh, was an immigrant from Italy. And uh, he fought in World War I. And that's how he ended up, I guess, after World War I up in Maine. But I'm curious to know if he if he had an attachment to the shoreline or to the ocean that might have drawn him in that direction. I always wonder if if it has to do with maybe where he was from in Italy that that he drew some sort of home connection there. No, he uh, was born and raised uh, up to uh, 16 years old in the mountains. Oh, really? Yeah, in in Italy, in and, Carpinone, uh, Italy. Yeah, uh, he. Uh, decided uh, to uh, immigrate because uh, we had several uncles and cousins that immigrated to uh, the Maine and Massachusetts area. And uh, they eventually, uh, a lot of them ended up working to build a railroad from point A to point B or point C uh, through the mountains. Uh, because they used to build those things in Europe too, and uh, so uh, 
he came from the mountains, but he loved the seashore. He loved the water. Uh, he couldn't swim a stroke. Really? But he, he would be there, and he ended up on his retirement as a lobsterman. Really? Uh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> he, he would sell his lobsters. He'd dig clams and sell those, and that's how he maintained livelihood with my mother and my siblings. Now I want to I want to uh, since it's Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving in America, uh, in addition to the important stuff where we uh, think about what we're thankful for, uh, we also feast, <laughs> and we food is a very important thing. And uh, up in New England, uh, the the ocean is so provides so much great food from fish to lobsters to clams on the sh on the seashore. Is that like a family activity? I know earlier you mentioned like the grandkids might be on the beach digging for clams. I mean, the, pulling food out of the ocean and out of the seashore seems like it's a way of life in Maine. That's true. It's true. And, and, and every family up there, they if they're a lobsterman, the children are lobstermen. Uh, if, they are, if they're out uh, uh, fishing uh, for a living, it's the same way. If, or if they're a clamor, it, that's part of the livelihood. So yeah. that's how, how they learn to, to get by. Well, I have no doubt that uh, having a place like the Seldom Inn in the family has proven to be an inspirational uh, venue to, for all of you. Peter, how did you end up in the Coast Guard? Ah, uh, you really want to know? <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, well... I always loved the water. Where we live in uh, in Maine is a town called Cumberland, and they have some some coastal. You know, we're on the shore there, but we didn't we didn't have a place on the, on the shore. But I spent a lot of summers uh, fishing. You know, I had a boat. And I dug clams commercially. I I like to uh, hunt and that kind of stuff. And I've spent a lot of time on the water and. And with my father having his business down in Portland, uh, I spent probably from seventh or eighth grade working on the boats and, and helping him supply the oil tankers. And uh, uh, just basically, uh, after a while, I decided college at the time wasn't for me and and uh, decided to join the Coast Guard thinking I was going to do uh, four years and it turned into almost 31 and it was it was a great career. Uh, I've had a uh, Had an opportunity to see some of the most uh, Pristine desolate uh, Beautiful places I uh, I had tours in Hawaii for six years where uh, the buoy tender I was on out there uh, uh, some of our trips were 10,000 miles. We'd leave wow. uh, Honolulu. We'd do go to Samoa, Marshall Islands, uh, Guam, uh, Ponape, Micronesia, uh, just some of the most uh, beautiful places, you know, that you that most people never even heard. I don't know. That's just very fortunate that was the avenue I took, you know. Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you for your service on this Thanksgiving, and uh, I i know Jenna is currently in the other room trying to track down that poem. Oh, I returned. Oh, you've returned. Wonderful, Jenna, because I want to uh, f continue this um, thread with you, 
because um, I know when you were actually on the American Shoreline podcast as a guest, Peter and I were talking with you about your kind of initial uh, coastal inspiration. Um, but I would like to know how the Seldom Inn uh, has influenced your uh, life of service to the ocean. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I feel like a common theme throughout this conversation is it's, we're all finding it hard to verbalize exactly what this place means to us because it goes beyond words. Um, it's this like deep, loving feeling that is so central to, I, I mean, I can't speak for everybody else in the family, but I feel comfortable saying this um, because we're all so close, that this place is, is so central to our identity as a family. Um, when you think about having 200 people um, in your family, you wouldn't think that you would be close to all of them. Um, and, you know, I've gotten comments before where it's like, you guys are all so freakishly close to the point where I feel like I could, I mean, obviously I want more friends all the time, but I could probably not make another friend in my entire life and be totally fine just with the friends that I've made in my family. And that's all attributed to our time at this camp because we have um, multiple times a year where we all get to go completely unplug and enjoy each other's company. And I know that you are wanting me to touch on the inspiration that I find in it in terms of ocean conservation, but I think that I'd be totally remiss if I didn't mention just how influential this place is um, to my identity, my morals, what I value. I mean, family is the number one thing that I value, and I think that that is, is a big part because of this place that I've had to go to um, get to know and enjoy the company of everybody that I'm related to. Um, yeah. yeah. But speaking to the ocean conservation side of it, and when I was hearing my dad and my grandpa speak about their connection to the ocean, I was thinking about jumping in and saying that I think that this camp plays a huge role in this maritime love that you see on the Valenti side of the family because we understand how important that coastline is and we get to see it change over the years um just in, enjoy its beauty and recreate on it and enjoy the food that comes right out of there um we know local lobstermen that will contact every time that we go to camp and um, have a big lobster feast and eat clams and um so yeah, I think it's a combination of being able to spend my summers up in that area, playing in the the water and um, just being in complete awe of the beauty that is our property. Um, and then also to mention that we are about 45 minutes to an hour's drive away from Acadia National Park. So I, um, I know a lot more people that are listening or aware if they have not visited the park itself, they're aware of the sheer beauty of that Absolutely place. beautiful place. To give, just to give the listeners a bit of a mental image about what kind of scenery we're talking about, think of something like that, that, that iconic rocky main coastline. Um, so it's just so central to everything that I do 
um, from ocean conservation to how I run my life, my daily life. Um, this place is so important to me. I would like to interject here a bit uh, with what she's been saying. Go ahead, Oren. It's amazing uh, how many friends that we have learned like the place and have asked them to come down uh, and spend a, just spend a few hours. But we also encourage them to take day trips. They stay at the at the camp, and and some when we have an overflow of people and too many tents on the property and campers, uh, we uh, also rent motel hotel rooms within uh, within thirty minutes, mm -hmm. and then we take day trips. So you can go to Canada and back. You can go to, to uh, 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 just about Bar everybody. Harbor. Yeah, Bar Harbor. You you name it. You can go back inland to the Blueberry Barrens. I mean, yeah. there's so much to see, and we also have a place in Machiasport or next to it uh, that makes sea salt. Oh wow. They they dry it in in concert huts. Wow! Uh, so your people want to go see that, and then the, uh, another thing is Helen's restaurant in Machias, where you can get the best pie in the world. Oh, so about yeah. an hour, yeah, probably a little yeah. hour and a half. So about an hour to an hour and a half is this town called Lubeck, where you can go to West Quaddy Head, which is the easternmost point in the continental United States. It's a lighthouse, but they have a bunch of hiking trails, and um. The area, the whole area around the camp is amazing, and it's, there's so much to explore there. But last summer, or two summers ago, my brother and a few of our friends decided to go up to explore West Quaddy Head, and we stopped at this infamous Helen's Pies along the way, and we ended up meeting Senator Angus King in wow. this tiny little pie shop. <laughs> um, in Machias, Maine, and uh, you know the shop was filled, I think, with a bunch of tourists and people that were so interested in their pies that they weren't paying attention to their surroundings. So no one really noticed him except for our table, um, and there were about eight to ten of us sitting there, and we all looked up, and you know, pie probably dropped out of our mouths because we were all in such shock that this situation was happening, and. He kind of chuckled and came over and chatted with us for about 15 and 20 minutes. He's, he's a lovely guy, but it's just, those are the, the things about Maine where, you know, you can be in this tiny little town and run into a senator or, you know, who knows who you're going to run into or the experiences that you'll have. But even someone with such notability as Angus King, you know, he still has that humbleness to him where he'll... Yeah and hang out with you while you're eating some pie at Helen's. Well, I have to ask, uh, because this is the Thanksgiving special on the Beat Shack podcast, I need to ask what kind of pie is best at this place? Oh, man. <laughs> That's tough. Well, blueberry pie, because we wore a lot of blueberries in Maine, too. Yeah, absolutely. That's the blueberry capital of, of, of uh, the world right there it, 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 on, on the coast of Maine. And uh, blueberry barrens are fed by fog and everything else, and that keeps it moist and uh, makes it forever and ever something to be thankful for. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I kind of like them all. I mean, uh, pecans, pretty good. Uh, blueberry, 
Raspberries. Yeah, I feel like I'm an chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an equal opportunity pie eater. I um, I don't know if I have a favorite. It's whatever one you put in front of me. Um, but there's a fun fact about that Helen. So this is a newly rebuilt Helen's, and if I if I'm correct, the old one burnt down. Yeah. And uh, there, when they were going through the remains of what burned, they found a single piece of pie perfectly preserved wow. and they have it now on display in their casing in their new restaurant. Well, another thing that in that area is Narragaga Stream River. Uh, oh, that's yeah. where the famous Atlantic salmon were being caught. Yeah. So maybe we should get Helen's Pies to sponsor the show now that we gave them a good plug. <laughs> and all of this is something to be thankful for. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. We Well, uh, the pie is one of the great uh, American Thanksgiving Day cuisines. I don't think, you know, I'm cooking the Thanksgiving Day meal this year in, in my household, and uh, I'm not a big baker, but the pie must be on the menu Uh so I'm actually going out. I'm I'm gonna outsource that duty this year to uh, some pie making professional here in Austin. Um, anyway, I I uh, think that it's just absolutely awesome that you guys have this tremendous family uh, place where you gather by the hundreds at times and uh, celebrate your connection as family members. And I think that that's something that many people in America, if not all people in America, uh, do on Thanksgiving. And I wanted to give you guys an opportunity to share any family traditions that, that the Valente family does on Thanksgiving. I might even add just opening that up to traditions we have at camp too. Um, Absolutely. Do you want to touch on that? I would love um, to also add that you know, I'm curious to know if you guys have ever done a Thanksgiving at camp uh, as a family. I know it's by this time of year, it's probably pretty, uh, pretty chilly. Um, but I'm curious to know. Well, we uh, we typically will open camp uh, the middle of April, and then Columbus Day weekend we'll have a, a closing. Uh, I have often talked to a few of my cousins and thought that if we could plan it where we look a week out and say, all right, if the weather's good, we're going to go down. We, we obviously secure the water and stuff, so it would be a little tough, but if, if the temperatures were, were good, a few of us could go down and, uh, and maybe have a Thanksgiving. I think that's something I've always considered or thought about, but it's just never happened yeah. just because uh, the camp is – is is closed basically uh one year i did i was living in in southwest harbor over on the, the acadia side there and on the island and my family was down here so i was commuting but i spent a whole winter uh living there uh wow. we got a gas, gas heater and, and it just kind of gave me a different perspective of of the coast in the middle of january when when i was living there but uh so that's kind of how we do it. We open in April and then close in October, pretty much. And, so uh, I, I imagine, uh, well, first of all, I I think that it is 
one of the things that I love about learning uh, about people's beach houses and, and residences on the shoreline of America is that people that spend a lot of time and actually spend seasons, spend months at a time living on the shoreline, come away with a different perspective of the place. Most Americans, when they go to the beach, go for, you know, a week, maybe two weeks max. And, uh, you know, it's on a vacation. It's a very compressed time schedule. But when you're living and residing on the shoreline, it allows for uh, a greater degree of connection with the actual environment. You get to experience uh, good weather and bad weather and the tides shifting. And I, I notice, at least in myself, that the that my actual sense of time begins to uh, focus more on the tidal uh, patterns than, you know, say my watch. Uh, it's, it's kind of a magical connection. And I think especially being out there and of course, in a snowy Maine winter with the, with the way it gets so quiet with the snow on the ground and uh, right next to the, the beautiful ocean, that must've been really magical. I have something to add to this business of staying down there in January and February. Yes, Oren. I would get uh, my brother and one, one brother-in-law and a couple of neighbors' friends that that have uh, they still go down with me, but we would go down in January and in February on a weekend. You plan it so that you can go down there and dig a few clams if you want. Yeah. However. You still have ice in January and February. You have ice flows, and but we would go and and uh, take a, a cot mattress and put on the floor in the kitchen, box everything off in the rest of the the camp because it it uh, we sleep twenty seven there. Right. Some of it's on the floor, so we <laughs> use these mattresses. And and when you have a wood burning stove. You can stay in the kitchen and have your sleeping bag, uh, but during the night when the tide shifts with an ice flow two or three feet thick, then it starts to be limited for the ice flow to go through what Peter had referred to as Lobster Island and where we are uh, a couple hundred yards away. When that ice flow wants to cut out, it hits the island and hits our shore, and it'll wake you up at night. Well, yeah. then you've got to have some of that happy happy drinking stuff, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so you can go back to bed. Something to keep you warm at night. That's right. Uh, tell me, yeah. so, so, you know, this is something to be thankful for when you get back home inland <laughs> where you have a nice warm, warm pillow. Absolutely, absolutely. That, see, that is a, an experience that uh, we don't have in California and you don't have in Florida and you don't have in the Carolinas. Uh, the sound of an ice flow uh, <laughs> careening into an island, that is, a, that is a main type of experience. Maybe Alaska gets that, but on the American shoreline, that is, uh, I have to say, that is unique to, the, to the, our northern uh, shoreline only. Uh, but it sounds it sounds, you know, that the, the thing about being next to the ocean is being next to this kind of infinite power that we're all connected to as as humans. But uh, when you're there, it you just see it in perspective and uh, it's it's meaningful. I mean, that is as I can imagine that would could be terrifying at night if you didn't know what it was, what you were hearing. 
Um, but it's also kind of it's a, it's a power. I, I can only imagine it's a powerful sensation to hear uh, the sound of thousands of tons of ice crash into a rocky shoreline. That must be quite an experience. Yeah, and I, I you can attribute that to the major tide changes that we have in Maine. And as you go up farther the the coast up to when you get close to the Bay of Fundy, which um, I'm sure most of the listeners know, but just as a refresher, has the largest tidal change um, from anywhere in the entire world. So even just sitting there throughout the day, and you could just sit there and watch the tide change if you did nothing else and be totally entertained. Um, thinking back to when my dad was just describing the view from the camp. Um, so we own this this part of Gouldsboro Point, and so it, it really comes out to this like rounded point. You look out to these islands, and where that sandbar is, um, that sandbar actually disappears when the tide is high. So then it just looks like a few different islands dotting the bay. Um, and then when it comes out, you can go and you can you walk out to the island and um, wow. Wow. you know sunbathe on the sandbar if you want to kayak out there. And uh, it's pretty cool. Sounds yeah. amazing. One thing I wanted to touch on was how we keep this place going yeah yeah <laughs> and uh there's a lot of a lot of work involved uh everybody contributes financially we have dues uh the big seven which was my father's <laughs> group and then then there was well, 20 we so just quickly we call my grandfather and his siblings the big seven for the seven children yeah uh, so if you hear us using that term in conversation, we're referring to my grandfather and his siblings. Yeah. So like the big seven, they have us dues. And then there was 22 cousins, you know, counting me and uh, we all contribute. And then the, cause I'm grandchildren, then the great grandchildren, they, they contribute. The great grandchildren is my generation. So we all actually have separate meetings. Um, so we go to camp, Generally, you'll get the most people. You go Memorial Day is a pretty big one. The big, the real biggie is Fourth of July. That's when everybody tries to go. And then Labor Day. Those are the big weekends. And then from there, you split off um, the different branches of the seven for the family. They get specific weekends that they can go. But over the Fourth of July, we'll generally have um, in-person meetings with our generations to talk about how can we contribute to the camp? What are projects that we can complete? How much money are we raising? Should we pay more to dues? Um, you know, how can, especially for my generation, we're starting to get to an age where most of us are out of college and have, we have jobs and can start contributing. Well, yeah, one thing I wanted to point out is like, uh, we, we do have uh, this past summer, we had uh, some erosion problems that we've been noticing and, uh, and the great-grandchildren seem to have more money in their account than the rest of us. I mean, it's all the same, but I, I want to give them credit where it's, where it's due with it. Uh, it was a pretty significant chunk of money that we had to put into uh, the sh shoreline in front of our, our place, which was over 300 feet. And uh, wow. because of their funds, uh, we were able to do that this this past summer and uh, 
And then we'll typically have work weekends as well where people will try to get up and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll identify projects, whether it's some roofing or whatever. The barn always seems to need work, but we all, we love the barn. So that, that's fine too. We have a lot of fun in it, <laughs> but so, uh, I just wanted to kind of give you a little little background on on how we support this place. It, it it's rustic. You can have a lot of fun there. It's not like you got you know you're, you're moving into this uh, beautiful home. You know what I mean? It's it, you go there and you have fun. And uh, and then the other thing I wanted to kind of touch on because. We are such a large family. We we do have some really good friends that love it down there as well, and 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 I think most of us would agree there there is friends, but also family. You know, they they come down sometimes on work weekends, or, you know, contribute just as much as the rest of us. They you know? donate money too. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so well, for a lot of them, the. Uh, the atmosphere down there and the view, I guess, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's the view, not, not the company so much, but yeah. it's a combination. It's a combination. <laughs> so we're very fortunate in that regard. Uh, so if you, you know, we're very blessed, I guess you would say that, uh, yeah, back in the thirties, something like this was started and we're, we're able to try to carry on and uh, that's all and be yeah because everybody also contributes to both the fun i mean i i hope you have the honor and privilege of meeting some of these people someday um but the characters that are in this family are what do you mean? <laughs> some of the most wonderful people you'll ever meet everybody is so different from the next um but you know no matter your differences or how you were raised your background when you are at camp your family whether you're blood or not um and everybody's there to have fun but because we use this place for fun and we all love it so much we take care of it so everybody understands the importance of making sure that we take care of it we have long-term planning um and have funds and you know kind of get down to business about how we make sure that we this this is going to last into the future, so our kids and our children's children can have this experience that we all get to enjoy. Yes, and I want to add here we have this documented because our mother and father started this place in. This 19 would be one and two, right? Yes. Yes. Yes, and in 1935, and they kept a cottage log. And I think we're on a, like the 28th log. People who come there sign in and put their name on, on the page. And now it's, it's, you don't get the name now. If you're family, you have a number. So <laughs> I think it's 28 uh, notebooks filled with people's comments about being there and want to come back. Um, and it's just a fun little fact about where we're going with the growth of our family. So we're now at the point where you have people that are 100 family members past you. And so um, I'm number 89 and I recently, a couple years ago, welcomed what we now call my centennial into the family. I gave a little speech at their wedding, which I did not intend to do, but I got her a little gift um, and was prompted by 
the mother of my my cousin to and uh, his aunt to say a little something about it. And usually, so you see this now at family at weddings. Um, there's usually someone will get up and speak and and welcome the person into the family and present them with their number, um, which is on a plaque. It has their name on it and their number, and then that plaque actually goes um, onto a wall in the camp. We have an entire wall that is a family tree and um, we're actually quickly running out of room. So that's a new challenge that we're gonna need to address. Um, but we just had our cousin Marissa get married um, to a lovely man named Zach and he was number 200 and he was actually Marissa's centennial because she's 100. Wow. So the extra special wedding. <laughs> that's, uh, that is such a cool family tradition. And uh, I just think it's so great that the Valente family and all of the the 200 plus family members now that that have been able to share uh, this wonderful family property, the Seldom Inn. Um, I just think that it's it's so it's just so cool to hear that that you guys are doing that. And I think it'll be especially interesting uh, for our audience to to understand how you guys make that feasible with uh, the collection of dues and volunteer meets out there. You know, beach houses and coastal properties are uh, high maintenance properties. There's the salt air. And of course, when you're up in New England, you've got winter, which uh, creates its own uh, pile of work and maintenance that has to be uh, kept up with. So um, I, I think that on the one hand, you know, it's yeah, it's a lot of work, but it brings the family together, and I think it allows you to appreciate just how beautiful and uh, interesting a place like that is. I mean, it's it is a difficult place to maintain structures and keep things permanent, but uh, it seems like your family has done just a really great job of adapting that property. Um, in that place to be a long-term place of of gathering for for your family and it seems to me like it will this will be the way for generations to come uh it's just really i i i feel like you guys are very grateful for um having this this place in your life well i i want to thank all of you for uh, being on the show and, and uh, participating on this Thanksgiving Day special. What are your plans for Thanksgiving? For me, we are hosting my wife's family. That's typically what we do uh, on a traditional Thanksgiving. Normally, we'll have another uh, Thanksgiving, but we won't have the turkey and stuff like that on, on Saturday for, for the Valenti side. But this year uh, we're not doing that one my father is going to uh, go to my sister's this year uh, my son just moved to la so he's not going to be around and and uh, so we're just taking a, uh, this this year off for right the traditional valenti side of the house because we normally do a big christmas thing for my family so we have the thanksgiving for my wife's family right you gotta balance it out yeah sure Oren, what are your plans? You're going. You're going to Peter's sister's place. Uh, yes, uh, but uh, for Thanksgiving dinner tomorrow, I've been going to our neighbors, 
because of our layout of uh, in-laws and outlaws on on Thanksgiving Day, my wife and I go to to our neighbor's house, and then the following Saturday we get together. Well, I'm going to go to our daughter's, who lives an hour and a half away, so we're going to go and, and celebrate with them. So the the in-laws and the outlaws have to have to take us one day or the other. <laughs> that sounds so, awesome, uh, Jenna. What 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 are your plans? So, um, same thing that my dad's doing. All right. So you're, you're sticking it with your father. <laughs> yeah. Just hanging out with my mom, dad, and my mom's side of the family, um, who I know that this episode is dedicated to my dad's side of the family. Um, but they are all also so important to me and I really cherish this time of year because I get to, uh, enjoy seeing both sides the company of all of my favorite people in the world. All right. Well, I think that we would be remiss if we did not hear the poem. Um, before, uh, Jenna, you read it, uh, please, uh, let's hear a little bit more about the author. I understand that this is Oren's mom that wrote this poem. Grandmother. That was my, my grandmother, my so, mother's mother. Your mother's mother. So, Jenna, that yeah. would make the author of this poem my great-great-grandmother. Your great-great-grandmother. And I understand that it's kept in the cookbook. Yes. So, oh, that's another really notable tradition um, that we have surrounding our camp. We will do fundraisers occasionally where we'll sell T-shirts with um, either in honor of um, some of the folks that have passed or... Um, you know, we, we usually will settle on some sort of theme for the 4th of July if people enjoy dressing up and being silly. Um, so we'll do like t-shirt sales, but, um, we also are always looking for new ways to raise money for the camp, whether it's calendars and a big one that we do is cookbooks being from a family of the Italian heritage that we have cooking is, uh, really central to, our whole family identity. We um, will split meals whenever we're all up to camp. Um, we have a bunch of phenomenal cooks um, within that group of 200. And so uh, every few years, we'll pull together all of our favorite recipes and put them in a cookbook and sell that. And they make amazing gifts too. Um, I, I definitely use mine all the time. And then you start to see they're sort of like collector's items, like there are specific recipes people will be looking for. And they're like, what edition was that in? And who has that one? And <laughs> so, yes, this poem is in the front of the most recent cookbook. Um, but I don't know if you want to speak a little bit more about your grandparents or. Uh, yeah, I, I fail to work to uh, tell you about my father. He left Italy when he was 16 years old. Uh, he was born in 1897. Oh, so uh, his, his, his uh, father, he never got back to Italy. He never saw his mother and father again. He received a message through my uncles uh, that he was either to come back uh, to Italy and join the Italian army or he would have to go in the United States army. So he, that's when he joined the army. He lied about his age. He was 17. 
and he lied about his age. And that's when he finally went to Europe, he was wounded and came back and met our mother and had seven nice, nice kids. That's great. So there's only uh, three of us left now. I, I'm, I'm one of those and, and uh, have an older sister at 95. It'd be 96 in December and uh, my younger one, uh, my younger brother and myself. When was this poem written? This poem was written in 1935. All right, Jenna, why don't you uh, recite uh, your great, great grandmother's poem? Just a place to rest where the tide flows free, where sailboats glide on a sparkling sea. Just a cottage small in which to stay and watch the gulls on a windy day. I can watch the seals like puppies at play swimming about in the salty spray where the ebb of tide and muscle beds slowly rise their dark gray heads where islands like gems dot the bay, their shores awash with leaping spray. This is the life, the life for me in my cottage, small beside the sea. That is beautiful. Thank you, Jenna, for that reading. And thank you to our listeners today on the Thanksgiving Day special of The Beach Shack. Uh, I have a few closing uh, remarks. Uh, you know, on Thanksgiving, I think that it's always important that we look back at the role and the purpose of this holiday. And, uh, of course, we know the uh, kind of mythic uh, story of the pilgrims arriving in uh, Plymouth and having a uh, feast uh, to commemorate the harvest and, and give thanks for uh, uh, the crop of food and supplies and provisions that they had gathered and grown uh, over the previous uh, summer and fall. Uh, and of course, in the United States, uh, Thanksgiving or some derivative of it was celebrated off and on through the colonial period and through the early part of our nation's history, but it kind of fell away until the 1860s in the Civil War. Uh, and it was during that time that President Lincoln reinstituted Thanksgiving, probably in, in our time of, of greatest strife and conflict as a, as a country. And I just wanted to, on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, of course, we cover uh, the American Shoreline that kind of wraps up America. It is our, it's our border with the rest of the world. And, uh, you know, I've, I feel like it's important for us to uh, look into ourselves this season uh, and remind ourselves all of, for all of the things that we are truly grateful for, the deep things like our families and uh, like generations that have come before us and have provided us with such tremendous opportunities to thrive and exist uh, in this modern world. Yes, indeed, we have problems and we have challenges that we will need to overcome but boy, do we have a lot to be thankful for. And, and I just wanted to recite this little excerpt from Lincoln's uh, presidential uh, decree where he reinstated this, this uh, holiday of Thanksgiving. 
And uh, in the first paragraph, I'm not going to read this part, but he, he references the fact that the nation is in a civil war and that uh, yet there's still so much to be, to be thankful for, that the population was increasing, that industry was thriving, that there were jobs, and that uh, in spite of the uh, tremendous hardship of the war, there were still things to uh, be thankful for. And in the final two paragraphs, he, he, as Lincoln is known to do, he changes his tone and, and starts talking uh, biblically about uh, the humility of man. And that's the part I want to share with our listeners today because uh, I think that when we are dealing with the shorelines of America, we are often in conflict between a power that is much greater than, than ourselves and so much of what we discuss on the podcast network uh, has to do with this idea of humility. So Lincoln says, No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath never, nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed to, to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States, and also those who are at sea and those who are soldiering in foreign lands, to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next, as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. I recommend to them that while offering up the ascriptions justly due to him for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also with humble penance for our national perseverance and disobedience, commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged, and fervently implore the imposition of the Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore it as soon as it may be consistent with the divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. I want to thank all of our listeners on the American Shoreline Podcast Network and wish all of you a very happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.